Uh, good morning again, everyone. Please do keep that passage open. That's where we're going to be spending our time. And if you'd like, um, in your um, church bulletin inside is uh, a sermon outline that's going to be roughly equivalent to what I'm talking about. Uh, I think for many Australians, the church is a strange and, let's be honest, a pretty shady institution, isn't it? Um, one with a mixed legacy. I think even in some quarters of Australian society these days, uh, the church is considered an organisation that is harmfully out of step with secular wisdom. Most notably, I think probably in areas of human relationships and sexuality. So I wonder what would happen. We take ourselves down to Round Corner, the shops down there, and we play a game of word association with the punters, as it were. I wonder what they'd say at the topic of the church. Irrelevant, maybe. Boring, certainly. Especially the sermons. There's 20 minutes you won't get back. Undeniably, I think we'd find that the reputation of the church has been almost irretrievably undermined, hasn't it? By human wickedness and rebellion. We know that. And regrettably, some of us in a group this large probably have experienced that. Consequently, I suspect that the words of Gandhi will resonate with many when he says, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. But before we get too cosy with Gandhi's words, because I think there are some holes in it, really what he's saying, his comment really amounts to a criticism of the church, doesn't it? Because when you think about it, the church is made up of Christians, so we can't let Gandhi off too lightly, but enough of the people out, out there. We can talk about the people out there all day long. What about us? We're the ones in church. So let me ask you this. Do you love the church? Do you love the church? Well, we're embarking today on what I think will be a very practical and I'm prayerful, a formative series in the life of our church because we're asking the question, what does it mean for us to be the church? And we're going to need to start by hearing God's word on the matter because the church is his idea. The church is his creation. God brings glory to the son he loves through the church. The church is the one, of course, for whom Christ spilled his blood. But in order for us to reach a point where you might agree and say, yes, I love the church, we're going to need to pause, aren't we? It's an ambitious project, so let's pray as we turn to God's word. Gracious God, loving Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your spirit-inspired, life-giving word. We pray according to the vision of our church that we'd be transformed by Jesus as we listen to you. Would you hear our prayer, we ask, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, in order to approach the question, do you love the church, we first need to be really clear what it is that we're talking about. So point number one, what is the church? Turn with me. I'm looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, and I'm going to be reading from verse 4. 1 Peter 2, beginning verse 4, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, verse 5, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. So right away, we're told that approaching God means coming to the one he has appointed, namely Jesus Christ, that rejected, crucified, risen, vindicated, precious, 
living stone. We come to him. And Jesus, of course, confirms as much, doesn't he? You'll know, John 14, without any hint of arrogance, I am the way. You want to come to the Father? Terrific, brilliant. Let me take you, but you come through me. Because, well, no one comes to the Father except through me. So verse 4, we come to him. And it's with that in mind, using the Old Testament Jerusalem temple as a word picture, Peter sketches out for us a framework of this brand new community, actually a new humanity that God is creating. Look again at verse 4. As you, that's plural, so me, you, we, as you come to him, the living stone, verse 5, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, or perhaps even better, a house of the Spirit. Both are possible. We're being built, these living stones. Now, I have to admit, this language of living stones always takes me back to that pet rock craze of the 1980s. You remember it. Very forgettable. But, gee, it was a triumph of capitalism, wasn't it? Let's take a rock, we'll package it nicely, we'll slap a price tag on it and watch people empty their wallets. It was brilliant stuff. We often think, don't we, in physical terms. So... What did you do yesterday? I went to church. Where are you going? I'm going to church. But strictly speaking, our physical structures have got nothing to do with the church, at least not the church that God is building. As one person put it, God's architecture is biological. We come to him, verse 4. Which, of course, again, is totally consistent with what Jesus promises, Matthew 16, where, or we might even say wherever, two or three gather, there I am. Wherever, there I am. Now, having said that, we can grow to love our church buildings, can't we? St. Clement's Mossman is special to me. That's where I got married. It's a terrific building. I love it. But according to 1 Peter 2, the growth of God's church, that is this new community, it's got nothing to do with physical structures, important though they may be to us. And in fact, as persecuted Christians around the world will confirm the growth of God's church, it thrives just fine without ornate cathedrals, perhaps even better. We might love our church buildings, but that's not the same as loving the church. So if our physical structures have got, well, if they're unrelated to the church God is building, why does Peter use this word picture of the old temple for the new community? Look at verse 4 and 5 again. As you come to him, the living stone, verse 5, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Now, symbolically at least, and symbols matter, Symbolically, the Jerusalem temple was where God lived among his people. But his people at that time amounted to largely the nation of Israel. That was about it. But that temple, which God, by the way, designed in, with intricate detail, that temple that mattered to him at that point, in every way Jesus makes that temple, which has since been destroyed, obsolete. It's obsolete now because in Jesus, the living stone, a new and better house is being built. You see, at the Jerusalem temple, priests would offer sacrifices and worship God on behalf of the people. And even then at only special times. But now, it's not just the Israelites anymore. It's people from every tribe, every nation. They, like we, come to him, the living stone. And we don't need priests to worship God for us, 
Well, because we are priests. Through Jesus' sacrifice, we have unrestricted access to God. We now fulfil the priestly role of worshipping God together. Verse 5, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. For what purpose? To be a holy priesthood. And what does the priesthood do? Well, they offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Now, we're going to need to unpack what it means to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. And in many ways, that's what the next six weeks is about. But for now, I simply want you to notice the church that God is building The church that I'm encouraging us to love has little, if anything, to do with our physical structures. So, if God's church is a spiritual house where forgiven sinners gather, why do we see so many denominations, I wonder? What's with that? Why is the church so fragmented? Someone reminded me of this photo I took a couple of years ago. It's down in Epping Station. You can see it on Langston Place. If you're feeling left out and you're a Baptist, just take a deep breath. It's on the next block. If you're a good old Presbyterian, it's two blocks in that direction. So let's just pretend that we're all here in one happy family. Now, which one of these is the church? I'll give you a tip. They do good work, but it's not the Epilepsy Association. Which one of these is a church and how do we decide? Is it all of them? Is it none of them? That'd be a worry, isn't it? Now, I'm going to lay my cards on the table. I'm an Anglican by conviction, so I'm going to vote for at least one of these. Which one is the church? Well, maybe at this point some of you are thinking, listen, maybe you wouldn't put it as crassly as this. Let me put it in commercial terms. I don't care about the brand. I just want the Bible to be taught faithfully. Now, if that's you, I want to say to you, you're in very good company appalled by the trappings of the church in his day, one of the leading church reformers, John Calvin, he had a hipster beard before they were trendy. He wrote this 500 years ago, the distinguishing marks of the church are what? The word of God purely preached and heard. Now, when he uses the word purely, he means the word faithfully, same, same, but different. The distinguishing marks of the church are the word of God purely preached and heard, because it's no use preaching if no one's hearing, and the sacraments, think Lord's Supper and baptism, administered according to Christ's institution. You got those two things, I'll tell you what you got, you got yourself a church, according to Calvin. I'll nail my colours to the mast. I agree with him. People being drawn together by God's spirit around his word, pointing us to our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, as you come to him, verse 4. So the church God is building, it's unrelated to physical structures, important though they may be to us. It doesn't depend on the denominational representations of the church, though I'd hasten to add they can do a lot of good. No, as I've said, the church is a community. People drawn together by God's spirit to be gathered around the Lord Jesus. And look at how we're described. Glance down at verse 9 with me. What are we like? You're a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Here is the church. A people chosen by God, precious to him. I reckon this description, it ought to humble us 
and it ought to encourage us in equal measure. That God would choose us. And if we allow ourselves the benefit of a moment of critical self-reflection, if you'll allow me to make up a word, there's nothing particularly choose-worthy about you and me. And so in this community, we might say there's no room for boasting or self-righteousness, just praise and wonder. Verse 9, you are a chosen people. That is verse 7, to you who believe, because this is always by faith, isn't it? Verse 7, those who believe, those who trust in the finished work of Jesus, his sin-bearing death, his life-giving resurrection, to you who believe, verse 9, you're a chosen people. I want to ask, do you believe that? Do you believe that? That you are God's special possession? Or is it possible that you're weighed down by the accusations of our adversary? The one Jesus would call the father of lies. Look at yourself, he says, you're not worthy. Who do you think you are? I know who you are. I know what you've done. I know what you're like. God has no interest in you, he says. Why don't you just give up? But to you who believe, to you who've come to him, hear the word of the Lord, you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. That's who you are. That's what you are. That's what you've been made to be. That is true north for the people of God, a community chosen, God's special possession. And did you notice the privilege as well? It's listed there. We've been called to do something as God's holy priesthood. Look again, verse 9, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That is, you've been set apart by him and for him. You are God's special possession. Why? So that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now, I reckon more than ever, more than ever, our world needs the church. As I've described it, the world needs the church, those who love the world enough to point them to the living stone. And in many respects, that's what Mission 2020 is all about. As those who've come to him, we invite others to come to him. And so with that, let me circle back to the question with which I began, do you love the church? Do you love the church? You know, there's a line at the beginning of Hebrews 12, you'll know it as soon as I mention it. It's talking about the Lord Jesus, and it says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Now ask yourself, what's the joy? What's the joy that was set before him that so motivated him to go to the cross? Was it that Jesus was motivated by the... I don't know, the adulation or the affection that he would receive from his heavenly father for a job well done. Maybe. But then again, when you think about it, Jesus has always, from eternity past, now and forever, enjoyed the adulation and affection of his father. So I don't think that could be right. No, I think what we have when it talks about the joy that was set before him, it's you. 
God's people gathered by the Spirit around the Son. That's the picture we're given from the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. People from every tribe and nation gathered around the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what motivated him. That's the joy that was set before him. That people like us would be called out of darkness and into the kingdom of the Son to receive, verse 10, God's unending mercy. Now listen, we can't pretend, can we, that the experience we have of the church we see and feel, this side of resurrection is perfect because it's not. It's not always easy to love the church, even as I've described it. And that's largely because the church is made up of people. And people are complicated and they're difficult. And that's just the ministers. True, isn't it? But given what we've seen from his word, I want to put it to you that God loves his church. God loves his church. It's precious to him, purchased at unimaginable cost. So I reckon it's worth, that is, God's people gathered, giving it a go to love his church and to love this local expression of his church. Now, I reckon for some people that might mean unlearning a couple of lessons where the default response might be to be critical and negative towards his church. Well, in any event, for the remainder of this term, we're going to think hard about what it means for us to be the church. God's people gathered by his spirit around his son, listening to his life-giving word and being transformed by it. What does it mean for us to be the church? I hope you'll join us six weeks together thinking about what it means for us to be this local expression of God's treasured possession, that we together might declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light, that we would be recipients of mercy, a new people transformed by Jesus. And so by way of conclusion, I want to leave you with a short video. This comes from the growth group material that we're using. And the question is this, what does God think? when you come into church. You are my beloved and adopted children. You're a gathering of people that I've purchased with the blood of my son. You're pure and acceptable in my sight, not because you come to church, nor by anything you do at church, but because of the cross. He's thinking, I'm so glad you've come here today because you belong here. I'm your father, this is your family. I want to speak with you and teach you and encourage you and rebuke you and warn you through my word so that you can grow as my children. I want to hear your prayers and praises and responses to my word and to answer. I want you to love one another and serve one another as brothers and sisters.